Uh, first of all, I'd like to welcome you all. Um, and <laughs> it's just great to see so many people. Uh, if people feel moved to sit in the front row, I would be very relieved because it's always harder. We'd like to have an informal atmosphere and it's always slightly more difficult if you have to project over a row of empty seats. So if some people at the back could feel moved to come to the front, I would be greatly relieved. Um, and just some housekeeping things first of all. Um, there are, Blackwell's has come along with copies of the book um, to sell, so uh, you can buy Common People there, and you can also buy Selena Todd's book, um, uh, The People, which is there as well. This is the last book at, yeah, great, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. And perhaps if another few people could come up, looking at people I know, <laughs> that would be wonderful. Um, so this is the last book at lunchtime series for this term. And next term, the series is going to focus on books that join between the sciences and humanities so that one of the things that's going to be a uh, <coughs> book next term is Pedro Ferreira's The Perfect Theory, A Century of Geniuses and the Battle Over General Relativity, which I've um, been reading and found absolutely fascinating because it's a physicist writing... Um, as a historian about, about the sort of biography of a theory. Um, and today um, our book is Common People by Alison Light, um, who is here. Um, should I pass this around if people would just like to have a look? Um, I won't pass it around just yet, but um, uh, I will pass it around in a second. And um, Alison is a it's a good friend of mine, and the reason why um, I very much, I mean, I wasn't the only person who suggested this, but the reason why it seemed so important to me to have this session is that I think this is a very special book that um, speaks to many people. It's uh, an accessible book. It moves to the field of um, family history, which is where the most um, popular interest in history is. So it has a very wide address. It's a book which um, is not just history and is not just literature. Alison is described as a writer, critic and scholar, which kind of says it, but doesn't quite say it, because one of the things that is so um, moving about this book is that it... Well, if I uh, am asked to describe it, I would say it's like reading E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class, but reading it from the perspective of experience, reading it from, in a way, from a woman's point of view, but it's much more than that, and written as a poem. It's um, an absolutely beautiful um, read, and it's full of metaphors that really stay in your mind. Um, for instance, one of the things she says is that all historians are resurrectionists, but perhaps family historians only want to give their ancestors a proper burial. It's got sentences like that which keep coming back to you, and there are many that have come back to me. Um, so I'll pass that around. It's a book which addresses very big questions, making you think about the past, about how we write, and about the nature of experience. Um, 
I should also say that Alison's second book, Mrs. Wolf and the Servants, um, was a study of the servants who worked for Virginia Woolf as well as of her. And so it's a wonderful evocation of both sides of a relationship. Um, so today, what we have um, is we have two people who will speak for about 10 minutes each about the book. Um, we'll ask Selena to speak first. And so if I can introduce Selena Todd. Selena, as many of you will know, is a um, lecturer in modern British history here and a fellow of St Hilda's. And her most recent book, The People, which is there, The Rise and Fall of the Working Class, 1910 to 2010, I think it's a wonderful century that she's taken, it came out in 2014, um, so this year. Uh, and it's a, a highly original way of thinking about the working class and people's experience um, and a very, very vivid, powerful book, uh, which is also a great read. Um, so she is going to speak for about 10 minutes. And we also have Laura Marcus, who's Goldsmith's Professor of English Literature here and at New College. And her research is predominantly in 19th and 20th century literature and culture. She's also written on Virginia Woolf and Bloomsbury culture, but she has a strong interest in contemporary fiction. And what she's working on now is on rhythm, um, which I think is a wonderfully evocative thing to be working on. And once she talks about it, you realise just how central it was to the early 20th century project in many different ways. So what I'm going to do is ask Selena to speak for about 10 minutes and then Laura to speak for about 10 minutes and then Alison will respond, but um, we will also open it up to you. Um, thank you. So, so All right, thank you. Thanks, everybody. And um, uh, I'm acutely aware that people have come here today not to listen to Selena Todd but to talk to Alison Light about her book. So <laughs> I'm going to try and talk for rather less than, than 10 minutes. So much of what I'm going to try to say... Um, is a bit about the questions that the book provoked in my mind as a way of sort of starting off discussion and saying what, what I, as a, as a historian of, of 19th and 20th century Britain, found intriguing and think might be, might be worth um, pursuing, not only in discussion with Alison, but for us as historians and history students uh, as we go forward. So um, this is a very rich history, and... Um, a couple of the things that it does in a very understated way, and there are, there are many others that I could pick out, but I think what's very interesting about the narrative that you construct, Alison, is that it's a narrative that does put women at the centre, not at the margins of this story. And it's one in which migration is also presented as a norm and not an aberration in terms of uh, the story of British history. Um, it's also one in which community is contingent and is constantly changing rather than being um, a static entity. Um, and, and those uh, three ways of thinking about the past are, I think, very convincing um, strands in this book um, and ones that we as historians would do well to pay more attention to. Um, and the fact that Alison shows that it's it's possible to use the narrative that is history, which is, after all, only one way of writing about the past, to talk about these things and to place women at the centre and to talk about movement um, uh, in these kinds of ways and about community in these kinds of ways, I think is, is something that's, that's very powerful um, 
Uh, and I'd be really intrigued to know whether that felt like it was a hard thing to do within that narrative or whether, in fact, these were things that almost naturally um, embedded themselves in, in the narrative that you were writing. Um, three stories, that th sorry, three questions that um, uh, I think I'm always asking myself as a historian, I'm always banging on about to my students, um, some of whom are here today, is, um, is when we're writing history, we're, we're always thinking, whose story is it that we're telling? I think we're very aware now that history is, in the end, only ever a partial narrative of the past. Um, and then also, how do we conceive of change over time? And when I'm teaching students um, in the first year uh, courses that overlap, say, with sociological readings or political science readings, one of the things that I'm always banging on about to them is that historians are very interested in what makes change happen in a way that certain other social sciences don't necessarily need to be preoccupied by, although they often are. Um, and then another question is, to what extent should history be a story? Um, I had a beautiful occasion earlier this term where um, uh, one of my first years was talking to me about proper history and academic history and I realised that, that what he was talking about um, in terms of popular history wasn't just the stuff in Waterstones but he was talking about proper history as readable history that he could understand as opposed to academic history <laughs> that he couldn't understand. Um, I thought that was rather lovely actually um, but it does raise a question about the narrative that we call history, what it should do, how it should be presented. Um, and I just want to touch very briefly on how I feel like this book could open up ways of talking about, about, about that. Um, I think one of the things that it does is it suggests that family history um, has the potential to complicate or to challenge our understandings of the kind of narratives of the past that, that, we've, that we've got. Um, and I'd love to know a bit more from Alison, but also from people here, about how they feel the book does that um, and to what extent the book is, is meant to do that. I guess one way in which, in which it, it, it's, it stood out for me was um, I felt that some of the time the narrative of family change was presented as being in tension with the macro narratives that we have available and sometimes it was used as a prism through which to look at the kinds of narratives we've already got available about say industrialization um, but one of the the agents of change that I thought it really brought into question was the state that a lot of histories talk about the state in this period as something which um, enacted change either on behalf of people um, or indeed against their will. And I wondered if at times in the book there's a sense in which the family almost replaces the state um, as a potential agent for change that we might want to take more seriously. Um, and at other times the family seems to provide more of a haven at times of change um, uh, and a, a place of stability and safety. Um, in times of great change. And I thought that, that was very interesting in terms of conceiving of the family and what we think the family is, which is, a, is a, an idea that I think we need to scrutinise in the age of family history. Um, I also wondered what work class does here. Um, Alison makes very clear that she wants to talk about people, not the people, that she doesn't want to essentialise the group that she's talking about. So I, I wonder... Have your title, Selina. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I obviously do essentialise people. I'm quite happy to call them the people. Um, um, I wondered if we could explore a bit more what that means to class um, and what that does to class and also if we find it difficult to conceive of, of, of class... Um, then 
Is it possible to use the kinds of words that are also used in the book, like respectability and like indeed bright, which is a, a word that's used um, and attributed to certain, to certain characters who appear in the book? Um, and I guess coming out of that, I wondered whether there's still resistance to histories that suggest that these lives are worth studying. Um, uh, it struck me many years ago when I first read Margaret Foster's book, Hidden Lives, her family memoir, that Claire Tomlin wrote a glowing review of it, but she said it tells us, it reminds us what misery people used to live in. And I thought she'd not really read the book properly, or she's certainly not read it in the way that I read it. Um, and I'd love to know more about the kinds of the informal as well as the, as well as the reviewers' responses to, to this book. And then finally, I just thought this book tells us a lot about um, questions to do with memory you know what do we do with memory as historians it's a question that we're still grappling with this is a story about past generations but I also wondered if this is a story of your generation Alison um, and if so what is that story because it's clearly not about memory as nostalgia memory about misery memoir or misery about romance and I wonder if there's a very complex and illuminating story about your generation that either you might like to write or perhaps my two students on the second row who are very interested in biography. <laughs> Maybe you could write it for your masters. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, as Selena's raised very interesting questions there, um, I'm really delighted to be able to uh, discuss this wonderful book. Alison is a very old friend, but we don't see each other very often. But it's true that our kind of in, our migrations up and down the yes. UK in various institutions sort of have brought us together over the over the decades. So it's lovely to be here today. Um, okay, I just going to sort of you know I'm I'm from literature and what we do in literature is close reading. So I've got my book and I've got some quotes, um, and I want to start with um, the vision that Alison tells us. Uh, engendered um, the book, or she puts it um, where it seated itself, looking out of a train window on one of those migrations to the University of Newcastle, where she was teaching at the time, glancing out of the window across the wide open fields of Lincolnshire. Uh, the fields were empty, not even a solitary farmer on a tractor, and suddenly I had a sense of how crowded and peopled those acres would have been in early, earlier centuries, and all at once a swarm of ghosts, nameless, their faces blurred with time, filled my mind. Um, and in the section just before this, she talked about uh, her grandmother's common grave, and throughout the book we have this question of the redefinition of the common, um, the beginning of her quest, her grandmother's common grave, not as an empty space, but what she, um, the quotation, a fair field full of folk, and those in literature and elsewhere will recognise this um, as from the opening of Langland's medieval dream poem, Piers Plowman, uh, in which the dreamer sees a fair field full of folk, found I in between, of all manner of men, the rich and the poor, working and wandering as the world asketh. So I was very struck with the ways in which working and wandering are at the heart of Alison's account of her ancestors and the broader social world that they represent. So it's a book about movement as, as well as, as about settlement. Um, it's about journeys on roadsteads, which Alison defines as uh, calls roads before roads, quote, whose course was known first by word of mouth and then learnt only by making the voyage. It is not a place but a passage and a way of fathoming uh, the world. So I was also struck, though, in, in the book by the, by the work of building, working as well as wandering, and there are wonderful discoveries that Alison makes about uh, a kind of estranged 
branch of the lights who were builders of places, including in Portsmouth, the school and the cinema that Alison went to as a child without knowing, and, and talking to her father didn't know either, that these structures were created by her forebears. So it's kind of extraordinary. So, that, so work, working and wandering, and the work of the, the building, the, the roadstead, and the journey and the migration, but also the putting down of, of roots and the laying of bricks uh, is very powerful. So Piers Plowman's vision is a kind of point of origin in the book, and it opens up a world of, of dreaming and imagining which inspires the historian, but which I think, and as Celia touches on this as well, she must in some senses be resistant. So the, the interplay between fiction and history, I think, is, is muted in the book, but it is a constant undertow. And I think anybody who works on life writing finds... Uh, autobiography, biography, memoir, these are hybrid forms in many ways where fiction and history at sometimes speak to each other and at other times say we can't have a conversation. Uh, and I think that's, that's extremely important for us. Um, so, uh, earlier in the, in the book, she's said, um, she's talk, been talking about the census. Every census detail starts a story. Not for the first time I felt the urge to fictionalise these people, these Edwardians. Yet ultimately I prefer the frustration of not knowing to the omniscience of a novelist. Whenever a reverie begins, and the, the, the terms of dream and reverie I think are very interesting there, chance encounters with other searches on family history websites pull me up short. They remind me that each person, a name on the page, was somebody's ancestor, great-grandfather, grandmother. There are limits to the liberties I can take. So we might question these liberties, the, the extent of them. So to some extent, the work of family history entails um, in the book the debunking of family legends, those tall stories, or in Freud's phrase, family romances, which Alison, throughout the book, describes in the terms of melodrama, a melodrama to which she herself is on occasion drawn but feels she must resist. But I think the book is fueled by an intense desire to find what she calls some sign of an inner life, of hopes and dreams, back to our dreams again, um, not this endless flitting past of lives like aimless moths seen in the light for a matter of seconds. So this desire demarcates a history from within or a history from inside rather than the history from below, which has more traditionally defined forms of social history. At no point does Alison invoke Raymond Williams, but it seemed to me that his concept of structures of feeling was very central, uh, crucial to her project. So just to end on the, the question of literature and history, the embedded italicized sections at the beginning of chapters um, which give us you know, the free flow of this inner history. And this was also a strategy that Alison used in Mrs. Wolfe and the Servants, where the servants, Nellie and Lottie, are given an inner life through this, through a very highly, uh, through a poetic prose. And we were talking earlier about um, the rhythm of this prose and the way that the rhythm guided you in the writing of it. This was a different kind of rhythm to the one that um, was at, at work, perhaps, in the, in, the, in the other sections. The quality of the writing is, I think, the quotes I've given you is exceptional. But I would also like to ask Alison and to raise the question more generally of the separation of these imaginings and speculations from the rest of the text as if fiction-making of a kind must be kept separate from the work of the historian, 
or um, you know what what are the limits what are the boundaries and how does this book work with that dialogue across but also the separation between mm. well thank you both very much indeed I feel very privileged to have had such uh, uh, incisive and sensitive readings and I don't attempt I'm not going to attempt to answer all the questions <laughs> which seem to me to range across a vast uh, area and are all very interesting and important um, I think if I start with Laura's last comment it might open out into some of the other questions that Selena raised I should say by the way that I'm very grateful to Torch um, that I'm here and that we were having this occasion which is a very nice idea indeed and we'll try not to talk for much longer because we'd like to have questions from the audience um, this question of the kind of limits of the book and the italicised sections I think, I think I did feel that history functioned in terms of the documents as a kind of limit to the liberties that I could take in writing um, and I think the ways of having to move from um, work in archives to reflecting on that work, I wanted to find a form that would allow me to do that. So I started probably with the question of form rather than with the question of what I found in the documents. And that may be because um, I'm originally from inside the literary. Um, so having the italicised sections, I found it was very important, just in terms of writing the book, to give the reader breathing spaces and to shift the tone and the pace of the narrative and to open up areas where people could reflect. And that all those kinds of writing needed to be different. And the italicised passages, which responded partly to the visions, the imagining of two men on a road, um, were written actually to more of a rhythm. And they were often the starting place, actually, of then what became some social history. And with the social history, by which I mean the passages where I extrapolated out from the personal to the local and found myself going to a record office, 13 of them in the end, all around the country, <laughs> staying in you know you don't want you don't want to know um, <laughs> but those place those points in the narrative I very ruthlessly limited myself to seven pages each time yeah. I mean it was a, in that sense there's a kind of mechanics which is about writing I'm not trying to avoid the big questions but I think that way of thinking I don't want to I want this to be a hybrid book whether it works or not, I want there to be different kinds of writing in the book. I want to allow an element of subjectivity into the book, and I can't do it, as Selena magnificently does, you know, through oral testimony. Um, I don't have those ego documents, as historians call them, but I can do it through the reflective passages. I can let the reader have my voice to some extent, and I can start from every grandparent in a kind of brief memoir section of that grandparent and use that as a jumping point back. So that's what I tried to do. 
I mean, on the bigger questions, and maybe we can open these out too, of class, I think I wanted, looking back, you know, I, I wanted there to be a feeling of immediacy um, in the book, that we didn't know these people as well as we thought we did as historians or readers. Um, I wanted to complicate in particular the category of the unskilled, the lumpen proletariat, the residuum, the people at the bottom. And I wanted to keep um, identifying them, naming them, naming their jobs, you know, from artificial flower maker to grocer to whatever it might be. And then also track them through the records to show that the same people had been called paupers, another form of agglomeration. I wanted to break down some of the um, homogenizing that our class narratives inevitably do and have to do. I think that probably is at the expense of a driving argument about class as agency in the book. I'm not sure I can do both in this book. Um, I felt that my attention, and it was this is just what, what I found out, had to be on trying to make sense of the migrations and movements of people who are generally not included in stories of class, actually. Um, so, I mean, one of the other things you mentioned, Selina, was about the place of the family, and I think all I want to say about that is that I'm very, I'm very, very aware that the family can also be a very conservative, um, both with a C and a big C place, and a conservative place in family history. Um, it need not produce stories that are in any way politically of the left, if I can put it like that. And in fact, in the past, frequently haven't. have been about blood and belonging and, all, and a measure of exclusion, sometimes murderous kinds of exclusion of others. Um, I think there is an oscillation in the book between the family as a place to complicate and even challenge larger narratives. I think sometimes when you look over family histories, actual people across time and what happens to them, it challenges what the official documents say about them. And that's very exciting and worth doing, I think, a hundred times over. Equally, I think I wanted to resist making the family the be-all and end-all. And I tried to show how, with my grandmother, who went, who was in, went into a workhouse, she had a, I discovered she had a vast family of Murphys and Heffrons in Portsea and Portsmouth. But despite this vast family, nobody could save her and her brother from going into the workhouse. And I tracked down why, and I won't go into all of that, but it became very plain that the state, um, the local authorities, municipal authorities, national government, these all actually do affect people's lives. And no amount of willpower and pulling your socks up is going to make any difference if you know, you don't have a steady income and your rents are, dread, you know, are high and so on. So at points I tried to resist the family. There's a lot more I could say, but perhaps... Is there, I mean, do you want to 
No, I think that's. I think that's. Does that sort of get at some of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think what's what's amazing about the book is that you create a coherent narrative without, as you say, dropping into any of these <coughs> narratives. You know, it doesn't become a family history or a history that denies the family. And I think that it's precisely those. You know, as Laura said, really those points between fiction and history, between state and family. You know, what you, what you call oscillation. Um, is, is actually a really interesting space. It's something we're always telling our students to get away from doing, but actually it's just that that way of <laughs> writing is really creative. <laughs> you yeah, are a very bad yeah, example, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Laura, you were right when you said about Raymond Williams, and it's funny that he's not mentioned. He's quite a difficult bloke to nail down, mm. you know, in terms of his own writing. Um, but I did go back and reread The Country and the City, mm-hmm. which I still think is a marvellous book. Um, and... I think that notion of structures of feeling, I think I've taken it so much to heart that, it's that I can't acknowledge it even anymore. Mm. So I'm glad you mentioned it. And if, you, if it's that sense too in Edward Thompson, I think, mm. of class being made. You know, class is something that happens. It's not something imposed. It's made and remade mm. in the room between people as well as through a relation to the means of production and certain distribution of wealth and so on. I think both mm-hmm. those concepts are, are, are sort of embedded in me, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would like to thank Alison very much and Laura and Selena for an absolutely fascinating discussion. <laughs>